0: In my Bible, I have navigated to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and I would like to ask you to join me there. Uh, A couple of days days ago on Thursday evening, I got to drive up to the Barberton Church of Christ, uh, south of Cleveland, and meet the congregation there and take part in a, a, a series that they have in the winter where someone comes up and speaks each Thursday evening for a series of weeks, and we got to talk about this topic with them. And I thought I would talk about it with you this morning as well. And I'll tell you, on Thursday evening when I was there, I don't know if we got any... I don't think we got any snow here. They got snow up there. Um, Rolled out the white carpet for me. It was very nice of them. And then this morning, snow again. So I don't know when I'll get the opportunity to preach this lesson once more. But we'll just have to see. Because so far, every time I've preached it, we've gotten snow. Mm, Wasn't as funny as it was in my head. Um... Alright, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. I want us to talk this morning about God's word. And I want to talk about the fact that we believe it is that the Bible is God's word. Uh, That the Bible, which is a name derived from the Greek word for book, is not just a book. It's not just any book. It's not like any other book. It is the book because it's words we believe are God's words. And as you could probably guess for a topic such as this, we would begin our, more, our sermon and our study together in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. I imagine those words are well known to you. But let me ask you something. Um, a moment ago, when I, I told you we were in 2 Timothy 3, join me there, please. Let's, let's turn there together. Um, I don't blame you if that didn't strike you. As anything novel. Maybe it did, but if you just said, okay, 2 Timothy 3 and started turning over there and got to that passage, got ready to listen, but didn't think anything special of it, I don't blame you if you didn't. Um I can't tell you how many times I've done the exact same thing. We are so accustomed to being able to turn in our Bibles anytime we want to, and and, and find a passage and read it together for perhaps the umpteenth time. That it just doesn't stick out necessarily as anything but a normal part of our lives. But as I suspect you know, there are are many people living in the world even today who don't have access to a copy of the scriptures. Um, Or perhaps they don't have access to it in their native tongue. There are hundreds of dialects at least in which the Bible has not yet been translated or into which. Um, in the last 100 years or so, there has just been an explosion of, of new translations as as scholars have been hard at work at translating the scriptures into just about as many languages as they can, but there are still hundreds left. There's still a lot of work to be done in that regard. And what is true for some today was true across the board a few hundred years ago. Uh, People absolutely could not just open up their Bibles to whatever passage the teacher called out because they didn't have them. And it wasn't just a matter of having them in their language. They had no access to them, period. Our ability to just simply open up the scriptures and turn to a passage is a privilege that has come to us through a great deal of sacrifice and effort on the part of some who have come before us, who were especially devoted to the goal of putting the words of God into the hands of everyone in languages they could understand. You might have heard before of John Wycliffe from the 1300s. He's sometimes referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. And that is in part because one of his chief contributions to that era was his effort to see the Bible translated from Latin into the vernacular of English. That was the common tongue of the people that he lived among. Because that goal was so strongly resisted by those who were in positions of power and authority, when Wycliffe nevertheless accomplished that task of translating the scriptures into the common tongue, those who were his opponents said that Wycliffe had taken the jewel of the clergy and turned it into the toy of the laity. In other words, they believed that the Bible should only belong to those few who were professionally trained to understand it. It ought to be left in the Latin language instead of translated into that common language. Vulgar, simple tongue of English and made available to the masses because who knows what might happen if anyone and everyone can get access to the word of God. Who knows what's going to come through that door once it's opened. But Wycliffe opened the door. And because he did, some 30 years after he died, he was formally declared a heretic And because he was a heretic, now there were some things they decided they needed to do. So they exhumed his body. They set his corpse before a group of people who spent some time reprimanding it and insulting it. Then they burned his body and they threw the ashes in the river. For the act of translating the Bible into the common tongue of the people. Similarly, you might have also heard of William Tyndale in the 1500s. He made an effort as well, further down the line, to try to make the Bible more readily available to English speaking people. Um, And because they were constantly trying to stop him, he had to do this work while continually on the run. So continually trying to evade those who were trying to capture him and put a stop to his work before he could complete it. When they finally caught him and they detained him for the, for the crime of translating the Bible into a common language that people could understand, the first thing that they did was use a wire to strangle him, only not to kill him. They injured him enough so that he couldn't speak anymore. And then they took him out and they burned him at the stake while still alive. And this they did because he wanted his, his countrymen and, and generations to come, which ultimately means me and you, to be able to read and understand God's word. So when I get to say something like, open your Bibles with me, please, to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and you and I just get to do that in the version of your choice, um, maybe even on an app. Where you have access to dozens of versions that you got to download for free. And then you can carry it with you everywhere in your pocket. And always just have the word of God right here. And you can text it back and forth to people. You can share it on social media. You can do anything with it that you want to anytime that you want to. You can read it and study it while on the the bus or whatever. It's a special thing. In part... Because of what it costs to give us access to these words, but then even more so because of whose words they are. They're God's words. So let's read some of them together now. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. Equipped for every good work. There are a number of things in that short statement. That are more than deserving of of our attention and time together this morning. Uh, He says that all scripture is. Your version may say as mine did. Breathed out by God. Uh, It may say a bit more succinctly. Just God breathed. Or, as is probably most familiar, and is the title of our lesson this morning, inspired by God. These are God's words. They come from his mouth. They're breathed out by God. There are a number of scriptures where the breath of God does some amazing things. Starting at the start. In the beginning, we learn that when God formed Adam, he did so out of the dust of the ground. So we have this imagery of God working with the elements like an artist would work with clay. And then God breathed into Adam the breath of life. So God's breath has the power to impart life to Adam and animate his body and give him an eternal soul. God's breath has the same power to impart life, indeed new life, to us. When we allow his inspired word, his breathed word, To take residence in our hearts and our minds and produce in us spiritual life and eternal life. If we will accept it for what it is. So Paul says all scripture is inspired of God. It comes from God. He breathed it out. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1 verse 21. No prophecy. Of scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is an interesting thing when you consider what the scriptures are, and we say that they come from the mind of God and not the mind of men. Um, we know that God used a variety of men to reveal his word, to receive it from him, to write it, to record it for everyone else. And that's an amazing process in and of itself. We talked about some of that uh, a number of years ago in our How We Got the Bible uh, class series that we had together. But you can see as you read different books of the Bible uh, that God has used these different writers along with their their personalities and their vocabularies and their syntax that are unique to each of them. So if you think about the, the writings of John. Next to the writings of Paul. Or think about the, the writings of Solomon and many of the Proverbs next to the Psalms of David. Uh, think about the way that Luke wrote as we were studying through the book of Acts just a little while ago. And now think about the, the writing of Isaiah as we're going through that today. You can see such a difference between the, the writing style of those individuals more than just the particular genre in which they're writing. Be it prophetic or, or history or poetry or wisdom literature, etc., And yet God has overseen that entire process so that he was able to communicate his word and his will through them. I like the way one person said it. They said, God is the reservoir. The writers were the conduit and the scriptures are the waters of life themselves. And just as Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. And that's what we want to be like. Taking in the word of God like that tree planted by those streams of water. So the Bible is God's word. And then there are some other passages that help flesh out our understanding of this concept. In John 16, verses 12 through 13, Jesus is finishing up his his earthly ministry and he's spending a few private hours alone with the disciples. And he's speaking to them some of his last words. When he realizes that they have mentally taken in just about all that they can, he said in verse 12, Over in First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul takes this idea and explains it a little bit further. In verse 9, he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the apostle Paul is saying that he, as an apostle, has received the teaching and the words from the Holy Spirit that he then writes down and in his time publicly teaches so that others can have access to them. And we all can know the mind of God when we read the inspired words of God given us by the Spirit of God. But I think one of the most succinct and perhaps easily understood um, and yet still powerful expressions of this particular concept is recorded for us in what Paul says to the Thessalonians. This is what he says to them in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Uh, sometimes the, the Thessalonians get a, a bit of a bad rap because they weren't as noble as the Bereans who search the scriptures daily. Not everybody in Thessalonica fit that description. Not everybody in Thessalonica Had some kind of chip on their shoulders. There were obviously some of them who when they heard the word of God. They accepted it for what it was. God's word. They didn't get bogged down as for example the the Corinthians did. Where they were comparing uh, Paul and his fellow laborers. And their styles of teaching. And their physical appearance. Next to the the flowery words. And the flashy professional appearance of, of other competing teachers causing them to lose focus on what really mattered, the words themselves. The Thessalonian brethren, something special about them was that they didn't do that. They listened to Paul to hear what God had to say. So God's words were what they wanted to hear, and they didn't allow the conduit to become the focus. You might have also noticed Paul said that if you and I will receive the words, uh, uh, the words of the apostles for what they really are, the words of God and not the words of men, then they are effective for us. He said at the end of verse 13 that those words are at work in you believers. So if the Bible is going to have its full impact, if it's going to accomplish the purpose for which God has said it, then you and I have to receive it. And not just as the words of Paul and Peter and James and John and, and men that lived a, a long time ago and had some ideas about how things ought to be done, but for what they claim to be God's words, God's mind, God's heart, God's will revealed to us. As I said, I think sometimes or I I know that that many times I've just turned in my Bible to this scripture or that um, and not appreciated what an incredible thing it is that I get to do that. Um, Yes, that's what God intended for us, but that's not always what men have been able to do. And there are still many who don't have the Bible in their own native tongue to be able to read it as easily as you and I can. We we are... uh, blessed with a, 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 an enormity of riches when it comes to Bible translations. I can sit there and look and, and judge them based on their merits and decide, you know, what, well, this one is pretty good, but this one is really good. So I'm going to use the really good one and not just the pretty good one and not the one that's decent and not the one that eh, has some issues. I, I, I've got my choice of the litter. So it's an incredible thing that you and I get to do that. But the reason it is such an incredible thing it's not just because of of what's uh, what, what people have gone through, so that we can have this, this this blessing. It's an incredible thing because of of whose words these are, as we said at the start. It is an amazing thing, a humbling thing, to hold in our hands words that reveal to us the will and the mind and the heart. Of our almighty creator. It's an incredible thing for God to be able to to breathe into that lump of elements. And cause it to stand up and be Adam. A living, breathing, thinking being. But what you and I have in our hands. Is arguably more incredible. And when you receive what God breathes into you. Through your reading of these words. It can make you spiritually alive. And it really is a marvelous thing. So I mentioned to you a moment ago, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. There's another individual named Thomas Paine from the 1700s. You've probably heard of him. Um, He was an English-born American political activist and revolutionary. So even if you haven't heard of him in the context of scriptural things, you've perhaps heard of him in the context of, of American history. Um, He also fancied himself something of a philosopher, uh, and perhaps a little bit more than just something of a philosopher. He was a skeptic, and there were a number of good things that he wrote, but he also wrote a book called The Age of Reason. And he said of that book, The Age of Reason, that he had written a better book just by himself, Then all of the writers in the books of the Bible put together. His book was superior to the Bible. And he said that he supposed within half a century, his book would effectively replace the Bible as the guide for life. If somebody was looking to a text as as a guide for living, that that it wouldn't be the Bible folks were looking at so much anymore. If they looked at anything, perhaps it'd be his book. And you wouldn't find the Bible on shelves. You wouldn't find people gathering to read it anymore. They'd be li- they wouldn't be living their lives by it. Revelation would be exchanged and upgraded to reason. We've got a bit of a select audience since we're here to, to worship the Lord together. So a bit of a bias inherent in this collection of people. How many of you have heard of the book, The Age of Reason? Just by show of hands, don't be ashamed if you have. It's it's talked about about four or five folks. Um, I'm not sure I've ever even seen a copy. Um, The Bible, as we said, what's happened in the last hundred or so years? This man from the 1700s. What's happened, especially in the last hundred, hundred and fifty? There's just been an explosion of translations, making the Bible more prevalent than ever, available to millions more than it was in his time. Just far and away. Might remind you of what Jesus said. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So because that's what the Bible is, that the Bible is the inspired words of God. It shouldn't be surprising to us to discover what they can do. And Paul tells us what the word of God does in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. He tells us it is useful or profitable for, for your version may say doctrine, for teaching. It teaches us most importantly about who God is. There is nothing more important than you can learn, nothing more impactful that you can learn than to learn who God is. A.W. Tozer said, there is nothing more important about you than what comes into your mind when you hear the word God. There's nothing more significant about you than what you do with the concept and the idea of God. So if you have a false view of who God is, it's going to be very hard for you to get anything else right after that. But if we understand truly who God is, we have a a place to start. So to understand, who is the maker of heaven and earth? Who has given me life? Why am I here? All of those questions, the answers to them, I should say, flow out of an understanding of who God is. What do I need to do with my life? That answer flows out of that understanding of who God is. I need to live uh, um, accountable before him. So the Bible is profitable for teaching us who God is, And therefore, who you are in relation to your maker and how to relate with anything else that he's made. Be that the rest of this physical creation around us or those he has created around us. That pretty much covers everything. And all of that vital information is contained in the scriptures. So because it's the word of God, it's profitable. It's useful in teaching you the most important and fundamental truths of life. But it also teaches us in some particular ways. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that the word of God teaches us by reproof, by correction, and by training in righteousness. That's how the English Standard Version and a number of others um, render the latter half of verse 16. The New International and Christian Standard Bibles say for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in Righteousness. So the idea is to tell you that you're doing wrong, to get you doing what is right, and then show you how to live godly. So moving from what is wrong to what is right, and on to righteousness. Now, if you don't receive the word of God for what it is, then right off the bat, that, that, that process is going to go askew. Those rebukes and those reproofs, they're just going to cause resentment in you. Because it just feels like God's telling you no for things that you want to do. It is exceptionally unpopular these days to tell anyone that what they're doing is wrong. Who are you to tell me that to judge me? I get to decide how to live my life. What is right for you may not be what's best for me. But God is creator. That's who he is to tell me no. If I treat the Bible as if it's just some invention of men, then it it, then those restrictions are just so that 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 this old stodgy way of life that that religious people from from days gone by can continue to use to impose their strict way of life on other people somebody somewhere along the way got it in their mind that this was how folks were supposed to live and they were able to just hold sway over so many for so long. But now we live in this age of reason and we can unshackle ourselves from all that nonsense. If on the other hand, though, you treat the Bible as the words of the one who made you, then you see those, 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 even those restrictions, those commandments As as examples of the fact that God is loving and merciful. If you treat the Bible as the word of God, then you see that whole picture of how it presents the Lord. And you know he's loving and merciful. And that he doesn't just tell us to stop so he can keep us limited and keep us pinned down. He tells us no, because those things are not what's best for us. One of my favorite passages of late has been Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through 11. The writer there says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, saying, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time As it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit notice this of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So every single parent has the responsibility to stop a child from doing something that's going to hurt them. Um, Edmund doesn't do it so much anymore. But when he was three, um, he absolutely loved if he saw a knife on the counter, he wanted to grab it. I don't blame him. It's shiny. It looks like, you know, an Edmund sized sword. He wanted to grab that knife Obviously, not realizing that it's going to cut him. It's dangerous in a child's hands. And, you know, mom and I aren't trying to rain on his parade by telling him no, and then popping his hand when he tries it again, and then popping his backside when he tries it again. And if you and I can understand that about earthly parents, then certainly we ought to be able to understand it about our heavenly father as well you know what happens when Edmund goes for that knife back when he was three well he cries and he wails because you've taken away the best thing in the world that he had his eyes on right then he didn't get the point you pop him and you have to pop him again and all that stuff he just acts like you're killing him and you don't love him and you don't want him to have any other any fun whatsoever but it's because you know what is best for him He mentions the example of earthly fathers. I understand that, that sometimes we have fathers who have not disciplined us in the way that they should. Uh, perhaps they didn't discipline us at all because they pretty much just abandoned their post. Um, either either totally or just effectively. And then I understand also that sometimes he says they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Sometimes You have parents that discipline their children out of their frustration and their impatience and their 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 anger as opposed to trying to do what's best. But generally speaking, he says, that's how it is with parents. Generally speaking, I imagine that's how all of you as parents have tried to do things as it seemed best to you. And if we can understand that about parents, if we can understand that as parents. Shall we not much more? Be subject to the Father of spirits and live. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And so the Hebrew writer says he disciplines us for our good. I've got three boys. I hope very much that I am not messing them up as badly as it feels like I am sometimes. I'm doing it according to what seems best to me. But I am man and not God. God, my heavenly father, he doesn't do it according to what seems best to him. He does it for good. He is God. There's no question as to whether or not his instructions are fit to the task. There's no question as to whether or not they're still current for our age. He is maker, he is omniscient. He understands better, he knows better. And because God said so ought to be plenty good enough reason for me. But you notice what the Hebrew writer says there he disciplines us for our good. That we may not just not die and not just instead live, but instead share his holiness. He gave me his words so that I could share in his holiness. And if you have been reading those words of late and have decided that it is time to follow them, If you are interested in becoming a Christian, if you've been studying your Bibles and you know what you need to do to become a child of God, then we would love to to hear you repent of your sins and confess your faith in Jesus and see you baptized into his name. If by chance you are, are new to the study of scriptures or there are just several holes in your understanding of what the Bible has to say, and you would like to patch those and value God's words for what they are, we would love to get to study with you. Socially distant, however we need to, but nevertheless, well, we want to offer now an invitation to share in God's holiness by obeying the words of God in his inspired book. And if we can at all help you to do that this morning, won't you let us know, perhaps after the service, if you prefer, or if you'd like to wait no longer, then please just come to the front right now while we stand and sing.